You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. If you've ever engaged a biologist in conversation, you've probably heard the term model organism. Model organisms serve as effective subjects for research and education in any number of reasons, oftentimes with human implications, but not always. They usually have a life history that's easily recreated in captive or laboratory conditions. They develop quickly and they reproduce under minimalistic conditions. In fact, several amphibians fit into this criteria and as such, we've been considered uh, and can be considered model organisms. Axolotls and American bullfrogs, two great examples, two species that immediately come to mind and our interest in them as hobbyists has sort of been facilitated by their long-term use as model organisms, meaning we kind of got them as second, you know, second-hand uh, scientific, um, you know, specimens that ended up making their way into the pet trade as a result of that. And their availability to the average enthusiast is a direct result of that. There's another species, however, or actually it's a genus, that is perhaps the most common amphibian model organism. Of course, I'm talking about the Xenopus genus, which consists of several species commonly known as African clawed frogs. They've been around for almost a century in some capacity or another in captivity, and they've been a real favorite in classrooms and labs forever. In fact, I remember ordering a kit uh, as a kid in the 80s from a scientific catalog that contained a small aquarium and a coupon where what it says was it said was a Xenopus uh, tropicalis tadpole, but in retrospect, after doing a little research, I found that it was probably another species from a completely different genus, which I believe was, um, uh, I think it was Hymenacurus, but that's neither here nor there. Well, in any event, time has passed. Members of the genus continue to serve as model organisms, contributing to substantial new research and development. And I've got a real treat for us tonight because my guest is Dr. Marco Horb of the National Xenopus Resource, and he's going to share some of his insights about the genus, how significant the species are when it comes to research, and we're going to get into quite a bit more because, um, you know, part of the original goal from developing this podcast was to bring together hobbyists and members of the scientific community, and I think that the more we tend to develop a mutual appreciation for each other and recognize the fact that we're all interested in the same things, we can move forward and Marco's been, I know he's been, he's been real busy. We've had a lot of work back and forth, but he's been, you know, able to come to us, talk to us tonight. And I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. So, uh, Marco, Dr. Horb, welcome. Thank you so much. How are you doing tonight? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so let's get into it. Why don't you tell us about your earliest experiences with science and the natural world and what led you to where you are today with the National Xenopus Resource? Yeah, I, I don't really have a story from my childhood where I was like, oh, I knew I was going to be a biologist. Um, but I remember growing up and I just loved animals. Uh, you know, I grew up in uh, Illinois, Chicago suburbs. I loved looking at salamanders. I remember getting chemistry sets when I was a kid. And it's funny, when I got older, I went back to my parents' house and they said, oh, we have some boxes of stuff. And I was looking at it and it was just all these books on neurobiology and neuroscience. I'm like, what is this? Like, I didn't remember any of it. And they're just like, oh, you just love this stuff. And I was like, I don't remember that. But so that I always had an interest in biology. And I remember in high school, I loved the biology class. I loved the fetal pig dissection. Uh, and so when I went to college, I my interest was biology and mathematics. And, uh, and I continued with the biology. And then I remember my junior year in college, uh, I took a, a higher level graduate class and was uh, really just loved it. And the professor was like, are you interested in research? And I said, what is research? I had no clue because my whole goal was pre-med. That's what most people go to college who are biologists. They just want to do pre-med. And he said, no, no, no. 
I want you to work in the lab. I said, okay, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I'm happy to try it out. And uh, that's when I fell in love with research. I did my first uh, undergraduate project in uh, Drosophila fruit flies. Uh, I was involved in sequencing genes and doing stuff like that. And it really led me to appreciate more about developmental biology and how it started. Uh, and from there, I decided I want to go to graduate school rather than medical school, which didn't make my parents happy. Uh, but decided I just wanted to do research. And so I started looking for places where I can do research on developmental biology. Uh, and I ended up getting accepted into a developmental biology program at Stony Brook University in Stony in, uh, New York. And, uh, and that's where I was first introduced to Xenopus. And that sort of just set me off from there. It's interesting. Um, you just said, um, uh, you mentioned fruit flies. For those of us in the dart frog world, that's another unintended consequence of, uh, of scientific research is now we have flightless, uh, flightless fruit flies, which is essentially the, the staple for our captive tar frogs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so I remember working with different fruit fly mutants and so forth. And, uh, but I really liked Xenopus because the, when I started, when I did, uh, so when you go to grad school, you do what are called rotations. You work in different labs. Um, and, in your first year, you do about four rotations. So I did a rotation in a mouse lab, a yeast lab, a frog lab, and a fruit fly lab. And uh, I just, I knew when I did the frog rotation, I was like, this is it. Because the eggs and the embryos were huge. You can dissect them. You get thousands of them. They're a lot of fun to work with. Um, and I just, I enjoyed the animal itself. Like when I worked with a fruit fly, I was like, oh, it's a fruit fly. Uh, when I worked with the mice, I was like, oh, it's just a mouse. But for something about the frog made me to just love it. And I just was like, this is what I want to do. And that's so I did my PhD working with Xenopus. I was working on early development on how um, how the three germ layers. So you got endoderm, mesoderm and ectoderm, how they get established. And I re just really enjoyed working with the animals. I like cutting up the embryos, uh, dissecting them doing transplants and different things. And that sort of led to my whole PhD uh, for five years. That's amazing. Tell us a little bit about the, the National Xenopus Resource. And well, before we, before we get into that, I just, I want to kind of stop everyone right now, but I, I do want to make it clear, you know, Marco and I had kind of discussed it earlier that um, the National Xenopus Resource does not sell to the public. So don't don't anyone try to contact him or anything like that. They they don't sell to the public. This is a strictly scientific endeavor for research purposes. So, um, okay. Disclaimer set. Continue. Continue. Uh, all right. Um, I'll, I'll just say. So I finished my PhD and then I was looking for what. After your PhD, you do a postdoc, uh, and I decided to stay in Xenopus. And I went to England and started working on later development on organogenesis. And I finished my postdoc. I was at the University of Bath in England. I was there for five years, and then I started my own lab in uh, Montreal at the Clinical Research Institute. Uh, and I keep kept working on pancreas development and uh, related to diabetes. And I was there eight years, and then, uh, I don't know, 2009, 10, there was a big uh, upswig in the Xenopus community to establish a stock center. And uh, they got a grant for it, and the person they had identified for the job decided he didn't want to go, so they had a you know, they were looking for people to take care of it. And I realized with Xenopus, you may not realize in the research community, but if you're not working on mice, um, you're in the minority or zebrafish, let's say. 
um, you have to justify what you're doing very strongly. And so I kept having to justify myself for the eight years I had in my lab about why Xenopus was important. And when I was told the stock center was getting started, I said, ah, I've been doing this for eight years, just defending the, the species. I'm going to actually go and uh, be involved. I, I said, this interests me. I want to do actually and start the stock center because there was no stock center before that in the U.S. And, uh, and, and so I said, I, I'll apply for the job. I ended up getting the position. And so I moved to Woods Hole, Massachusetts, to the Marine Biological Laboratory in 2011, where I've been since then. Uh, and at that time, when I moved here, there were no frogs. Well, they had frogs, but no, a very few. They didn't really have a colony. They just had a few founder species, uh, founder males and females. And the National Xenophys Resource was set up not to breed wild-type frogs, but rather to breed uh, frogs that were modified genetically by the research community. Because you can imagine if the government is putting in a ton of money into research, they don't want to lose the animals that are created as a result of the research. So they established repositories for this. So you have Jackson Lab for mice, for example. Uh, and so they established the National Xenopus Resource for that exact uh, purpose. And so basically what we did is we started taking in all these transgenic animals that people were making inbred animals that people were making or that were had been uh, bred over 30 generations and we wanted to be able to sell them back to the research community so that it wasn't a difficult task because most researchers when you have your own lab you basically have a, a recirculating system that's the most common and you maybe have one maybe two but you don't really breed the frogs because one of the problems with xenopus is the time it takes to actually get them from fertilization to adulthood um, for Xenopus slavis, it's almost a year. Uh, for Xenopus tropicalis, it's about six to eight months. So people really don't have the time to do that and the space. And so we were set up the what I call the NXR, the National Xenopus Resource. So we were set up to actually breed all these different transgenic lines and then make them available to the community so that the burden didn't lie with the individual researcher who didn't have the space. So they would send me the frogs, I would breed them, and we'd distribute them. That was the original goal. Um, and so, for example, now we have over 75 different transgenic lines, um, and we quickly outgrew our space as a result. Um, but the, the issue became that we became the repository, and people depended on us. So if somebody had produced an animal 10 years ago, we kept breeding them because people wanted them. And that's our goal for the resource centers to actually distribute these transgenic inbred frogs. Since 2014 or 15, with the advent of genome editing technologies, we now actually make mutant frogs. So in the past, genetics and xenopus wasn't something that people did. I mean, there, historically, there are papers on genetics and frogs. But people just were like, I'm not going to wait three years to get a mutant or four years to get a mutant. Whereas if you think about it, fruit flies takes, you know, I don't know, a month, two months. Zebrafish, maybe six to nine months, for example, to get a, a mutant. Um, and people didn't want to wait that long. And so when we started the NXR, the whole point was to focus on husbandry and breeding, how to make them grow more quickly, how to get them to sexual maturity faster. And then with the genome editing technologies, which we do now is CRISPR-Cas, we do a lot of that now, making different mutants. Um, we are now focused on making these different mutants, and we've made over 125 different mutants in Xenopus, focused on genes that are involved in human disease. And one of the other aspects of the resource center is not just 
breeding, distributing, and maintaining these lines. But it's also cryopreservation of the lines. So we work closely like with the cryopreservation people to make sure that we're cryopreserving them. Uh, but it's also we have uh, intellectual interchange. So people come to where I'm at at the Marine Biological Laboratory to use all the frogs we have. But we also have courses. We run courses, uh, usually one to two a year, focused on uh, advanced imaging in Xenopus, uh, genome editing in Xenopus. Um, and this is sort of what we uh, we do here. So that's sort of not just breeding and distributing, but also trying to be the uh, centerpiece of the Xenopus community so people come here. So we run conferences here, we host visiting scientists, and that's a big thing of what we do. You just kind of blew my next question away. <laughs> no, it's cool. Um, I, well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell us about the genus, but you, you mentioned a lot of the uh, mutants. I was just curious, you know, uh, I mean, I think you said, what, it was 75 different mutants, mutations? No, we, we have 125. Well, well, let's get back to that. I don't mind talking about the genus right now. Sure. I think that, that's about So Xenopus actually has, I think, almost 30 different species that are alive right now. The majority of them are tetraploid. Almost all of them are tetraploid. There's only one diploid species, and that's Xenopus tropicalis. And that, that comes from uh, Western Africa, uh, Nigeria, Cameroon, Ghana. Um, and so they're more, what diploid means basically is that they have uh, basically just two copies of the gene. Yeah, as like humans are diploid. Tetraploid means you have four copies of the gene. So most Xenopus species are tetraploid. Uh, and they arose by two different diploid species hybridizing, and they became tetraploid. But there's tons of tetraploid. There's also octoploid, dodecaploid species. So they have uh, some of the biggest genomes uh, in the vertebrate world. Uh, and so like uh, there's a uh, endangered species, Xenopus, uh, I don't know the pronunciation exactly. I think it's uh, long eeps. Um, and they're endangered. They've got their dodecaploid, for example. Um, but we don't have that species in our house. Uh, I think the London Zoo has them, um, but they're very rare. Uh, and so Xenopus is anywhere from West Africa down to South Africa, and you can find them throughout that whole region. And they actually breed with one another. So you can actually take two different tetraploid species and they will uh, breed with one another. Sometimes you have to take the female from one species and the male from another, uh, otherwise it won't work. Uh, and so one of the things actually we were working on is we're trying to do this because we have about eight or nine species in our, in our uh, resource center. Um, and so we're trying to actually cross the different species together. And this is just common in the research community. You see it a lot in fish species, they'll cross them together uh, to, and it, it'll uncover different types of mutations because the chromosomes are incompatible, which they call, um, you know, of course, hybrid incompatibility. You think about a mule, that's the same type of thing. And so with frogs, we do the same thing. We haven't gotten very far with it, but it is a, a possibility. So their natural history, they live in dirt, basically. They live in garbage water. Um, they can, uh, if you look around Africa, they can actually, they're aquatic species, but they can crawl along the ground but they do quickly desiccate. Um, but they are, they, there is a lot of uh, research being done that has shown that they can actually travel pretty far distances. Um, but they live in pretty much lakes, freshwater areas. They don't have to be clean. 
Um, but they eat everything. Uh, that's the one thing that makes them a problem throughout the world is they can eat almost anything. So that you can actually see there's a natural colony of Xenopus slavis in Chile um, that has been existing for, I don't know, maybe 100 years. Um, and that goes back to how Xenopus was originally used uh, you know, going back almost uh, 100 years. Do you want me to go into that? Absolutely. All right. So originally why people started, because if you think about it, going back 100, if you look in the history of developmental biology, people work more with Rana than anything else. The problem with Rana is they're seasonal and they don't produce as many eggs. Xenopus was found out to be non-seasonal, meaning we can use the frogs every three months to lay eggs. They don't care about the season. They don't care about the, the weather. They'll lay eggs every three months. And when they realize, and the other thing is, you can take a, a frog, a Xenopus frog, and put it in ba basically tap water. Although I would be hesitant to say that only because it depends on how your tap water is treated and how much chlorine is in it. Um, when I was a grad student, I took frogs from New York to uh, Illinois. And in New York, the water was fine. The tap water you put out on the counter, let it sit there for a day. The chlorine would dissipate, basically. I went to Illinois. I did the same thing. And uh, the frogs, after a day when I put them in the water, within a few hours, they were all dead. And that's partly because the water was treated differently. So tap water has always got a bunch of different treatments. So you got to be a little careful with that when you have uh, frogs. And I hadn't realized that. I, you know, I was 23 years old at the time, and I was just like, well, it's just a frog. What's the problem? I put it out. Um, but yeah, so they're, they are sensitive to chemical compositions within the water. But at the same token, they're not as sensitive as other animals. So basically, you can almost use any tap water and they would survive in it no problem, uh, especially going back to the 1920s and so forth. And at that time, in the 1920s, 1930s, when they were doing pregnancy tests, they used to take women's urine and inject it into rabbits. And then they would have to sacrifice the rabbits uh, to see if there was an effect on the ovaries and so forth. And that's how they knew the woman was pregnant. What they did with Xenopus was they realized that if you injected women's urine into the back of Xenopus, they would lay eggs in one to two days because the hormone in the urine, which is of course, you think about a pregnancy uh, test, when a, a woman uses a pregnancy test, what it detects is human chorionic gonadotrophin hormone. And that is what induces ovulation in a frog. And so if you inject it into a frog, if the frog lays egg, then the hormone is there. And so Xenopus became a standard for pregnancy tests in the 30s and 40s. And that's where it really became a big boon around the world. That's amazing. I mean, to think that something like that has been, I mean, you don't think about frogs being used in. Uh, research capacity up until, I mean, I, at least I would think within the past, maybe like 50 years or so, but it's, it's amazing. I mean, is, was there early use in the, um, in the research community Did that have anything to do with how they ended up being invasive in certain areas for such a long time? I think, what, which country did you mention before where they were invasive? Chile. Chile. Okay. I mean, did that have anything to do with that? Or? I think a lot of it has to do with the pregnancy testing. Um, because Xenopus can live, Xenopus lavis can live up to 30, 40 years. And I think part of it is they imported these frogs and started working on them for pregnancy testing and then just released them into the wild. And they didn't realize uh, how they ate or how ravenous these frogs were. Um, and so they can eat everything from flies to 
just uh, any any type of uh, anything in the water, but they can come out of the water and eat stuff. Um, and uh, one interesting thing about them is they have no tongues, so they just gulp everything down. Um, they're you know the Xenopus is a tongueless uh, amphibian, uh, so they don't you know they don't spit their tongue out to catch a fly. Uh, and I think that was, if you go back to the history, that's what started all these, uh, if you look at the different, and this is my personal opinion, I have to say, um, if you look around Chile or California or stuff, I think a lot of that had to do with pregnancy testing. Interesting. I mean, people are often, you know, I don't want to get into the, the whole uh, debacle about invasive species because that's a yeah. whole series of episodes in itself. But it's interesting how people are very, very quick to blame the pet trade for the presence of invasive species. And meanwhile, it's, you know, like no one was keeping these things as pets in the 1930s. So Correct. they come from everywhere. I mean, it can be, you know, pretty much any situation you can end up having an invasive species and surprisingly pregnancy tests. Yeah. It makes perfect yeah. sense. So if you go, if you go back, yes, they were a popular pet trade. I'm sure that contributed to it, but I don't think it was the main driver of it. Um, and the big thing is they talk about chytrid and they always blame Xenopus for it. Um, but you can actually find, uh, there's studies done in England, for example, where Xenopus has lived for decades in a lake, uh, and the Xenopus tests positive for chytrid, but it hasn't decimated the, uh, local population. Um, so I'm not sure Xenopus is actually the driver of the chytrid problem. Um, I think there must be something else beyond that. I'd read something similar. I'd come across a couple of articles. This was going back, uh, maybe about six or probably maybe about six or seven years. I'd read something to the effect that Xenopus might have been a vector for chytrid in the United States, but uh, there really wasn't any concrete evidence that it was or it wasn't. It was just sort of implied, I guess. I don't know. I I, no, I agree exactly. I think Xenopus does have chytrid. Um, Fortunately, the ones we breed do not. We actually test them regularly. Um, but we have quarantine rooms, and our quarantine rooms do have chytrid. Um, so it is common in Xenopus. I'm not saying it's not common. But I think the evidence out there is that the populations that have chytrid aren't contributing to the decline of amphibians in the wild population as a result of Xenopus having chytrid. Interesting, interesting. I mean, from what I've, I've had some other guests on the show, and we've talked briefly about chytrid, but I mean, for example, like certain species, like I think here in, in um, on Long Island, actually, there's been um, cases where bullfrogs have tested positive for chytrid, but not been symptomatic. Yeah. So it seems like there's actually quite a few species that can live with it and be asymptomatic or not necessarily be um, vectors for it to pass to other species. But it's, it's, it's such a dirty word that I think everyone's kind of really, really reluctant to, um, you know, to assume anything because of what it's done to frog populations in Central America and everything that's happening with, uh, with B-Sal over in, in, in Europe and Asia, but it's, it's kind of become a, a dirty word. No, exactly. I, so like Xenopus latus can handle chytrid. It doesn't bother them. Uh, but Xenopus tropicalis, they can't handle chytrid. They die. Um, and so a lot of people can't grow their Xenopus latus and tropicalis uh, colonies together. Uh, unless you have a clean, uh, quote unquote, colony. Um, and so we grow our Lavis and Tropicalis together because we don't have any chytrid in our main colony. I see. Why, why work with two species? Why not just a single species? 
So Lavis is great because of the size of the eggs and the embryos, the number of embryos, uh, eggs that they produce. Um, but because they're tetraploid, um, they make it more difficult to do any types of genetics. And they take about 12 months, as I said, to reach sexual maturity. But when you look at Xenopus tropicalis, they grow at a slightly higher temperature. Uh, they're a little more fragile than Xenopus lavis. You can do almost anything to Xenopus lavis and they survive. Uh, Xenopus tropicalis, you change the parameters, the temperature a little bit, they get stressed out, they die. Um, so there, people don't like them as much in terms of a research animal. Uh, but Xenopus tropicalis is diploid. It only takes six to eight months to reach sexual maturity. So you don't have to, if you're making a mutant, you don't have to worry about knocking out four genes. You only have to knock out uh, the, the single gene that's on two different chromosomes. Um, and the other, so there are some benefits to it in that. But historically, up until about the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, people only worked on Xenopus latus. And so now that people are doing more genetics with Xenopus, they're starting to use Xenopus tropicalis a bit more. But there's still this idea that Xenopus lavis is better because they're hardier. Uh, and not every single gene is present in four copies. And so the interesting about Xenopus lavis is that it actually has two different genomes in its body. Uh, so we call it tetraploid. But in reality, they're two separate genomes that segregate independently. And uh, we call them L and S, which is long and short. And that just refers to the relative size overall of every chromosome that you, uh, the long, the L, they're usually longer than the short. And so there are a lot of genes, uh, they say up to 20% of the genes that are only present in the diploid, so only two copies. So they can either have the L copy or the S copy. And so one of the great things about Xenopus is we have this great database that's called Zenbase, where we have the whole genome up there. You can look for any gene you want. You can find out whether it's present in one or two copies in Xenopus lavis. It'll tell you both about Xenopus lavis, Xenopus tropicalis. And from a research standpoint, it has completely, uh, I don't want to say reinvigorated, but uh, enhanced what we can do with the model as a research animal. Because now, if I want to find a gene, I go in because they sequence the genome, I type the gene in, and I can get the whole structure of, um, of the gene. You think about the, uh, if you go back, uh, what is it now, 24 years or so, or 22 years, uh, with the Human Genome Project. I don't know if you remember that. I do, um, but that, I do. That, that was a big deal. So we have the Xenopus Genome Project, and that has revolutionized stuff for us that is beyond our ability. So if people want to go and look at Zenbase, they can actually look at the genomes. There's, um, so think there's 10 chromosomes uh, in Xenopus tropicalis. And in Lavis, there are 18 chromosomes. Um, so the ninth and 10th chromosome from Tropicalis has fused into a single chromosome. That's why there's fewer chromosomes. You know, that, that's why there's only uh, nine pairs of chromosomes in Xenopus latus. But you can actually look for a gene, find out what it looks like in Xenopus Tropicalis, tell you what genes are around it. Compared to human, you can look at it in Lavis. I mean, these are things that are just, if you ask me, could we do this 15 years ago? I'd be like, no, nah, you're nuts. Um, but we can do this now. It just revolutionized things for us. So it's almost like, I mean, I'm, I'm not, I was never, I, I always did poorly <laughs> with genetics, but, um, it's essentially like having, um, almost like the owner's manual for the frog's genome, right? Is basically how you have it mapped is you basically have an outline of where everything is and what it does. Exactly. It's okay. not perfect, 
it's not perfect because they use a lot of uh, computational algorithms to determine things. Um, and so they're not always correct. But for the most part, it's fantastic. Like um, somebody, for example, uh, at the NIH wanted me to make a mutant in, in a frog related to a gene involved in muscle development. And I was looking in the frog and it was completely convoluted, like how the frog Xenopus had the, uh, the gene. And there was a complete difference between Xenopus tropicalis and Xenopus lavis. And they didn't what we call annotate it properly. The gene had 55 chrome uh, exons and we only found 40 in Xenopus tropicalis. So we do a little deep, dibber, ah, digger, uh, deeper digging and we can identify some more of the exons. So as I said, it's not perfect, but it actually points us in the direction that is so much easier than it was 20 years ago. Do they share any, well, like, do they share some of their genetic makeup with, with humans? I mean, is there genes that are analogous, but, you know, in, in both of us? Oh, definitely. Uh, probably about 75 to 80% of the genes in Xenopus are the same in human. Um, and that's one of the things that one of the research aspects that I do is we're making models of human disease in Xenopus uh, based on the genes that are mutated in humans. So I'll give you an example is uh, polycystic kidney disease. So we know there's a bunch of different genes involved in that in humans. and we. But the problem is you can't really... If you want to test how to, I don't want to say cure, but how to treat the disease, you need to have product that you can actually put a treatment on. The benefit of Xenopus, for example, like this, is if I can make tadpoles that would develop polycystic kidney disease, and we can put a chemical into the water and see if it can rescue the mutant, um, and we get hundreds of thousands of these mutants that we can work with, we have a large sample size. It's a small volume. It makes it easier to test the chemical. Uh, and it's a lot easier than, say, working with the mice. If you think about a mouse, a mouse produces eight pups, maybe 10, maybe 12. Uh, Xenopus labels will produce five, 6,000 offspring. And so we have a larger sample size to work with. And as long as we can reproduce the sort of generalities of the disease, uh, we can actually then make a leap then into mammals uh, to test it. So Xenopus, of course, is going to be different. It's aquatic. It's not going to be identical. Uh, but uh, the process of how a disease develops may be similar. And you can identify then products that you can do to test the on the tadpoles to see if they work uh, well. How do you go about selecting for mutations and other spontaneous mutations that have made their way into the research field? Yeah, there's, there's actually, it's funny you, you asked that because um, I just finished writing a chapter for a book, which we call Frog Book, <laughs> uh, which is for the Xenopus community. Uh, and the idea is that we did a re systematic review of all the mutants that existed in Xenopus, naturally occurring uh, ones that were produced by us or others uh, over the last six, seven years. Um, and there is a history um, going back to the 70s that they produced naturally occurring mutants. But, and this was mainly in Switzerland. But nobody really followed up with it. And so those mutants were lost. And so we don't have them anymore, unfortunately. Um, so, but we can actually target um, mutations to a specific gene. Uh, and so if you want to make a mutation in a specific gene, you can do that relatively 
relatively easily in, in frogs right now. It takes time still, and so you have to be patient, um, but it is possible. Yeah, it's just, I think about a lot of the, I mean, I guess if we were to consider it, I'm, not, I'm trying to think of the best way to phrase this, but I mean, in the, in the, in the reptile community, ball pythons were, I mean, I remember being younger, having a wild type ball python and thinking, all right, this is cool. But people have selectively bred for so many different color morphs that it's, it's amazing that all this information is there. It's just being able to figure out how to manipulate it, so to speak, is really the, the key to it all. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. People have not bred Xenopus to that extent. Although I'd say we have an inbred species that has been inbred for 30 generations. Really? For Xen yeah, for Xenopus latest. So there's actually a species that is completely homozygous at every locus. Um, and we call it the J strain. And so there, you can't find it anywhere. It was uh, started in Switzerland. It went to Japan. And now we have it here in the U.S. And so we make that available to the research community, which is really valuable when you think about from a research perspective that you want to have the inbred lines because uh, if you want to make mutants and stuff, you want to have the sequence in each gene to be the same. So then these are for all intents and purposes, almost like clones of each other. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So in mouse, they've done this. They have the C56 bound C. They have all these different inbred strains, and that's what really led to a revolution in genetics in mice, for example. Okay, so let me ask you just one quick question. In terms of uh, a line being completely inbred, I mean, people often hear the stories that if an animal becomes excessively inbred, it no longer becomes, I mean, I guess th those traits become so modified that anything negative becomes so amplified that the species will, or individual rather, will... I don't know, almost like cease to exist. I mean, how does it how does it work for a species that's so inbred that it's essentially a clone of itself? That's a great question. I, part of it is because they're tetraploid. Um, so you have four copies of everything or two different genes, basically. Um, and so it's not as dramatic, although I'm not saying it doesn't happen. You know, you think of humans when they inbreed, they, the mutations come out. And they, the mutations come out because you have a homozygous mutation and uh, like first cousins or something uh, will, will breed and the offspring will have uh, recessive mutations in the same gene. But if you think of tetraploid, you now have to have recessive mutations in two different genes. And so the likelihood of that is less so. Um, it's not saying it doesn't happen. I have to say the inbred species that is completely inbred does not grow very well. They... So our normal Xenopus latus species takes about eight to 10 months for females to reach sexual maturity. This one takes about 16 to 18 months and they're much smaller. That's interesting. Uh, one, one issue, in the, at least in the dark frog hobby, is the introduction of fresh stock to sort of you know invigorate the stock that we have available to us because certain species, and especially now with the state of affairs in the hobby, um, you know, certain countries are no longer exporting things. Certain countries never did to begin with. So there's always been a tremendous amount of concern that ultimately these animals will become so inbred to the point where their genetic diversity will be so low that they'll become a lot much, they'll become much more fragile. I mean, obviously I'm comparing apples with oranges here because you know, dart frogs are not, you know, they're not even in the same family as, as Xenopus. Um, 
I mean, is that just something that's unique just to Xenopus, or is that, to your knowledge, apply to any other any other amphibian species? No, I, I think it applies to any amphibian species. I think if you look, I mean, the mouse can do it. They've inbred species for generations, going back decades. Um, and uh, they do find differences between different inbred species um, in terms of when you're, like, making a mutant, depending on the genetic background, uh, because of mutations that might exist in other genes. So dart, uh, dart frogs, I'm not really sure if they're tetraploid or not, but I would imagine it wouldn't be a problem inbreeding them over long term. But I'm, I don't quote me on that because I'm not a dart frog expert. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something that's always been kind of on my mind. I want to, I want to get into husbandry though because you you maintain these things on a pretty large scale and o- over the years, I mean, I I don't see these things available too much. I mean, it used to be you go down to any any aquarium or pet store, they always had them in this, you know, yeah, pretty Spartan aquarium, maybe some gravel on the bottom. Maybe I just haven't paid it too much attention, but I, I haven't seen them that much anymore. But uh, how are you guys keeping these things in the laboratory? So I, I should say you can actually buy them commercially. There's two companies now, Xenopus One and Xenopus Express. Um, I'm pretty sure they sell to the public. I don't know. Um, uh, their main clients are research, but, uh, they're commercial entities. So you can look them up online, um, uh, and find out and they have different species as well. Um, but how we maintain them may be different than most people. So when I first started my PhD, we maintained the frogs in these big tubs and then you would drain the tub and fill it up with new water. Now it's not the best thing for a frog because, uh, you're basically, draining the water they have a bunch of ammonia in them you don't have any filters in there they get a little stressed out it's okay uh but now what we use are recirculating systems but they're expensive like one recirculating system is twenty five thousand (laughs) dollars and it can hold a couple hundred frogs for example but it's expensive and you got to replace them it's like a pool you got to replace a mechanical filter which is those filters you buy for your pool it's almost the same thing you have to have carbon in there you have to have biomedia, meaning you have to have bacteria that converts the ammonia uh, to less toxic products. Um, and so that's what we use. So in our facility, for example, we have different types of systems. So we have what we call multi-rack systems, which is we have four of these, two for Lavis, two for Tropicalis. And these are ones that have, uh, I'm trying to think of how many liters. Of, I mean, they're huge. They're they probably each hold uh, five thousand frogs each or more, and they have. We have different size tanks ranging from forty liter to seventy-five liter to one hundred and seventy liter. And basically, what it is is that you got all these tanks, um, and the water goes in, and we actually have what we call flood and flush systems. So you won't have this in a normal aquarium. Um, but it's a tank where in the middle we have a standpipe and it cre- uh, the water fills up and it's got an inner standpipe, an outer standpipe. And so basically we feed them. We don't have to clean them anymore because the, what happens is when the water rises, it creates sort of a vacuum where it sucks everything up between the inner and outer standpipe. And then it goes down the inner standpipe into the drain. And then the drain goes all the way to the back and it's in another room where we have a huge reservoir of water. Uh, and it actually, we put it through a drum filter. So the drum filter actually gets rid of the bulk waste 
and then the water goes in and that's where our bacteria are. They live on these uh, plastic beads um, and, and the water then gets somewhat treated by the bacteria. And then we put it through a, a mechanical filter and a carbon filter that we have to change every other day. And then it goes through some UV lights and then it gets get put back to uh, the frogs. And we also have a, a, like a, a heat exchanger to ma maintain temperature. Um, you know, we're talking uh, $100,000 for a system like that, basically, um, just for the system, not for the tanks, but just for the actual system that maintains the water. Um, and the system is all automatically programmed. And so it does 10% water changes every day. And we don't use tap water, we use RO water. So we take tap water from the city uh, or the town and we get rid of all the minerals and stuff. And then we add salt and bicarbonate back to maintain a certain conductivity, a certain uh, buffer. Uh, and so we have all this recorded, we have these controllers that record everything. Uh, and so throughout a day, uh, it'll exchange 10% of the water. And so it doesn't do it all at once. So it does uh, every hour a little bit at a time. And the, the good thing with that is that the water doesn't change for the frogs. Because the problem is if you have a static tank and you drain it and you put in new frogs, you sort of shock the frogs a little bit. In this regard, with the recirculating system, um, it actually uh, maintains a quality so they never get shocked. And if you think about because we're doing research and we have thousands of frogs, you don't want them when they get shocked, that's when they get stressed out, they might get disease. So we try to limit that as much as possible. Um, but it's expensive to run and it's uh, essential to have, like we have a, a condenser on the roof of our building that chills the water for us because we need it at 68 degrees for Xenopus Lavis. Uh, and this is critical. And, and all these things play a role in how we treat the frogs in terms of their water. Um, and so one of the things we're working on now is what do the frogs eat? Because if you look in the literature or for any frog, really, nobody's done the research on what do they actually eat. Um, it's different from like if you had a, if you're doing research on mice, the food and everything is very regimented and it's not that way for frogs. And so when I first started 10 years ago, we were playing around with it and we started realizing, well, some of these food in here, the pellets you can buy, that's not really great. Like, what does a frog need? I don't know. I, I don't know what a frog needs in the wild. What does it need in captivity? So we started looking into it. And one of the things we've been working on over the last five, six years is trying to determine what type of pellets are best for these frogs, because that's why we feed them pellets. Although Xenopus loves liver, but it's not very clean. Uh, you could have parasites in the liver. You could have uh, pathogens in the liver. So because we're trying to avoid having any of that in our colony, we have to make sure that we're using sterilized food. So we started exploring that. And one of the things we're working on now is using different types of pellets. So we combine, for example, a trout pellet uh, with what we call a frog pellet from one of the breeders. Um, but even then, we have to look at the ingredients. What do they put in the pellets? How does it help the frog out? So we're exploring how can we treat the pellets differently? Uh, so, for example, we just this last year, we started researching uh, we had an issue with Xenopus tropicalis is much more sensitive to what we call uh, what is called ovarian hyperstimulation uh, syndrome. So the way we get our frogs to lay eggs is we inject them with either purified human chorionic gonadotrophin hormone or purified luteinizing hormone, which are 
natural things that are involved in stimulating egg laying. Um, Xenopus lavis is fine. They, they don't ha really have this ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, but tropicalis do. And what happens is you, you boost them with this hormone. They won't lay eggs the next day. And part of the reason they don't lay eggs is they retain the eggs and then they die. And so we started researching this and we realized, uh, fish had the same problem going back. We're going back to the sixties and seventies when they started doing a lot of aquaculture for carp and different things. And what they started doing is they were treating the fish pellets with essential fatty acids. So we said, well, let's investigate this. So what if we treated our pellets with these essential fatty acids? So, you know, low scale, went out to Home Depot, got a little paint gun, bought some uh, essential fatty acids online. And these are things that they use actually to feed horses. Because if you think about a horse's fur uh, and the shininess of it, um, it's because of what they feed them with these essential fatty acids. But we found out that the carp, that if they, back four decades ago, when they added these to the carp, they actually grew better, they reproduced better. So we're uh, experimenting on this to see if we can improve the quality of our egg-laying frogs by giving them different types of fatty acids or vitamins. Uh, and can we add different types of foods? Because trout pellets are high in fat. So with our systems, if we have too much fat, the fat accumulates all over the tanks and it's messy. It's not really good because Xenopus, unlike fish, are huge and they produce a lot of waste. And so they accumulate a lot more of the uh, problems associated with the food. And so that so we mix now our trout pellets with uh, what we call Xenopus food. We do different things and there's different types. Of, I mean, there's hundreds of different types of fish food out there. Uh, so we're exploring now trying to figure out what is best for the frog. This this may sound kind of like a, a a simple question, but if the average person wanted to maintain an individual or a small group of say like Lavis, like how would you recommend that they set that up in their home? Obviously, if they don't have yeah. um, access to a hundred thousand dollars, <laughs> no, it's 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 actually pretty simple. So we do have display tanks uh, in our uh, institute where we don't have a, a very expensive facility um, and. We actually put in rocks at the bottom that adds uh, a certain, I forget which exactly we put in there, but that adds, as a sort of filter, we put in plants in there. Um, and the funny thing is, um, and so as long as you're exchanging the water, like a normal aquarium, as long as you're monitoring ammonia and all these things, the frogs are fine. They, they survive pretty happily. And you do always have to do some water change. Um, so if you have your home aquarium, you might have to take out some of the water and put in fresh water. As long as the fresh water you're putting in, you know, doesn't have chlorine in it, you're pretty much fine. Um, you can actually set up like aquariums do set up where they do recirculate some of the water. I know you can actually, uh, for a low cost, do that. And that's what we've done. We have these uh, display tanks, uh, which are basically aquariums that you buy uh, wholesale. And we have frogs in there and they do perfectly fine. Um, they're actually quite happy and I'll be honest because where we keep our frogs, there's no windows, so they never see sunlight, but where our display tanks are, they see sunlight all the time. And the funny thing is they started naturally laying eggs, which is unusual because when you have a captive bred, uh, Xenopus population in a research setting, they don't naturally lay eggs. They just, they don't, uh, because they don't see sunlight. They don't see the change in seasons. Um, but with these. Uh, in the same environment here in Massachusetts, 
we actually had tadpoles uh, because we had males and females in the tank. We had tadpoles that actually, they didn't survive, but we did see tadpoles in the tank uh, because the female laid eggs and the male uh, fertilized them. So it is possible to actually get that without any hormone treatment uh, based if you maintain your water, water quality and so forth. But the Xenopus love, especially if you're dealing, Xenopus lavis are, they're huge. So you can't give them lily pads, for example. They don't like that because they would just sink them. Uh, but they do like the plant life. Xenopus tropicalis are much smaller, uh, so you can give them lily pads. We actually uh, enrich our Xenopus lavis with lily pads. Or um, I don't know if you've seen those logs you can buy online, those floating logs. I have to say Xenopus tropicalis love them. That's like their favorite thing. They hide in those logs. Um, they actually are, <laughs> they love to come to the surface. If you, uh, you can buy those platforms that you attach to the edge of your aquarium. They love to actually come out of the water and just sit on top of the platform for a period of time. They can't do it for long periods because they dry out. But Xenopus tropicalis has a very different behavior than Xenopus lavis. Xenopus lavis just sit at the bottom or just float a little bit. They don't really do anything. But Xenopus tropicalis have a much better uh, behavior pattern than Xenopus lavis. And I think for a hobbyist, I would prefer to have Xenopus tropicalis because they just are much more, they have a lot different behavior that every time I walk into our room with Xenopus tropicalis, I'm always amazed at their behaviors. And I'm just like, ah, oh, these are great pets to have in the house. Yeah, the last, the last experience I had was uh, this was going back into the eighties. I, I did the whole grow a frog thing, which I kind of mentioned you know, earlier, but, um, I ended up, you, you'd, you'd go to the, the local aquarium store and there would always be a couple of odds and ends there that they had in the fish section. And one of them was, was usually some, some sort of Xenopus, um, or might've been, uh, oh God, what did I say? Um, Hymenacaris, which I think they, yeah. they sold as the, the dwarf, um, yeah. the dwarf African clawed frogs. But you know, they so they said, all right, you know, it's 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 fully aquatic, and I was like, okay, cool. I put, you know, I, I didn't know any better. Being like eleven years old, I went at home, I put it in my communal aquarium, and then like the next day, I had one fat frog and no fish. So <laughs> it, it it was, uh, yeah, they they were very entertaining to watch though, and um, and they 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 did hop actually, which as I was pretty surprised was it it doing a water change, uh, had it in a bowl. And it, it hopped out of the bowl and across my kitchen counter. And I, I was actually really surprised because I just was under the impression that they'll just kind of sit there and, you know, I mean, they're a lot more animated than I would have thought. But, I mean, you mentioned some temperature parameters earlier, especially like with, with Lavis. Do you want to keep them on the cooler side, like around 68? Is that what you, uh, what you mentioned before? Yeah, they Lavis can handle anything from about 50 degrees to about 72, 73. Um, and if they're sick or if they have some pathogens, they might get, they might actually display some type of symptoms, but they're pretty hardy. Xenopus tropicalis, they need about 75 to 78. Um, and if you change that temperature a little bit or you change the pH a little bit, they don't like it so much. And so Xenopus tropicalis are much more difficult to work with because you have to make sure that you maintain uh, the temperature and the pH uh, for them. Um, and they're more sensitive to changes in ammonia and different things like that. We actually had uh, our system went haywire once and dosed too much bicarbonate. So the pH went up to like 8.5. 
and we lost hundreds of frogs. They just, it, they didn't die right away. They were fine. And then over the next two months, they just started dying. Um, so they're a little more sensitive to uh, rebounding from uh, shocks. Xenopus lavis, no, they can handle the shocks pretty well. In terms of pH, like what would you recommend? Like, like a neutral pH or something more acidic? No, seven to eight. Okay. Yeah. But basically, uh, they, we keep ours at about 7.5. Um, and they're really happy with that. Um, I think that the important thing, uh, is consistency in water quality. Um, you know, you can't, uh, let them go where the water quality gets worse. They're really sensitive to ammonia. So if you're not changing the water, uh, they will, uh, so they they'll always have these endogenous pathogens that you can't detect normally, but when they get stressed out, the pathogens start to reproduce and it ends up killing them. So they get like red uh, red leg disease is one thing, uh, but you can treat that. You put them in a high salt, and sometimes they recover. Yeah, I think that's one of the big problems with with amphibians in general is that you uh, you upset the apple cart, so to speak, and then anything, any like latent infections or parasites, et cetera, they all sort of come front and center and, and do some serious damage. It's interesting because you'd think that after years and years and years that, that Xenopus would be pretty much like unbreakable. You, yeah, you would think so. But um, it, again, it, because one thing I've learned over the last 10 years, it depends on the water from your city. So I can... People have sent frogs that look perfectly healthy to another city, even within the same country. Like you can send it from the south of England to the north of England. And because they treat their water so differently, um, it has an impact on how they react to that. And that's something you can't know unless you are actually comparing the city water qualities and you got a report from the city of what's in the water and so forth. And a, a great example I give is, when I was in Montreal, we used to use city water that we'd put through a carbon filter. And when I first got there, and it was fine. The, the frogs loved it. But the problem became that because of the change of seasons, and it was so cold up there, that in the at the end of winter, they used to treat the city water with more chemicals because you had the runoff from the snow melt. And so they would treat it with more chemicals. And so that was more detrimental to the frogs because when the water came to them, say in the early spring, um, it had a lot more chemicals that we couldn't get rid of with just a carbon filter. And so then we ended up having to switch to an RO system where we uh, took the city water, removed everything, added back the salts. Uh, But if you live in an area where you've tested this out, then you can pretty much be consistent with uh, how you handle the frogs. It's interesting because you you say that, and I've for longtime listeners of the show, you've probably heard me mention this on and off. But the water district that I have um, went kind of through the ringer. They actually ended up uh, suing the Navy because the um, the aquifer here ended up being uh, being seriously contaminated. And right now, they're in a multi million dollar cleanup. And I often wonder, you know, what the effect has been on my frogs because I. You know, in the course of me breeding, uh, you know, the couple of dark frog species that I have, I haven't had a tremendous amount of luck with, uh, with, with tadpoles fully metamorphosing. The ones that I have had metamorphosed were, were like, you know, on their A game. These guys were, were tough as nails, but uh, I lost a lot. And I often wonder if that has to do with my water quality here 
And it may also have to do with the fact that my water bill is like $4 a year. So I guess if, yeah. you, if you want so, quality, you got to pay for it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, with us, um, when I was a grad student, I just grew them in tubs and I would change the water when it got filthy and scoop the tadpoles out and move them. Um, now we actually, what we do is we let the sediment actually settle um, so that they, there's almost a lawn of, uh, garbage on the bottom of the tank and the tadpoles feed off that but we don't change the water as much because we don't want to stress them when they're going through metamorphosis as much because we feel like at, that's so important that if you're changing the water like if you're completely changing their water um, they get stressed so much and you're introducing new chemicals that they don't survive as well and they'd like to just filter feed so they go to the bottom for, for xenopus they just the tadpoles go to the bottom of the tank and they feed off the detritus that's just sitting on the bottom of the tank. Um, and so we've actually been experimenting with that and playing with that. And that we find that the less disruption you can do to a tadpole that's going under undergoing metamorphosis, the better it is. So if you can just change their water briefly, more frequently, it's better for them than doing these big changes. It's interesting how you can reach that state of you know, almost like a, like a perfect balance, I guess. I mean, I've tried all different things with, with raising tadpoles and I, I tend to think that the water quality, even though I, I do, I do have an RO system, which I actually just ordered a replacement for, but, um, I had better results just using bottled water in slight mix with, well, I mean the, 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 the dendrobates, um, it's, it's different. Obviously it's different than Xenopus. I, I don't want to get too off topic, but, mm-hmm. um, I, I, yeah, water quality does seem to play a pretty significant role in the, in the development of tadpoles. Yeah. I'll give you an example. So I live in, uh, Falmouth in Massachusetts. Um, and so we get our water from a pond and I moved here. I got a new water heater. I bought a brand new bathtub. And I was so happy about it and this and that. And the water still kept coming up brown. And I, I was like, I feel like I'm taking a bath in a lake. Um, and after about five, six, seven years, I'm like, I'm replacing the water. I'm getting filters for the water. And that should do it. And so I got filters for my whole, ho- my whole home. But I still kept getting brown water. And part of the problem is because my water heater was so old that it just had all the sediment from uh the city water over the last few years so then when i replaced the actual water heater or the the yeah the 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 water uh, storage one the it was brand new and all the water that was going into the water heater already went through the i had uh, two different filters and now when i go into my bathtub it's clean so it depends on where you live when, you know when i lived in montreal my water was never brown but here where i live my water is brown because it's just not treated the same. Yeah, we get a, we get a, a, well, we used to get, I haven't gotten in a while, but we used to get a quarterly report of everything that was done um, to the, because we're on aquifers here on Long Island. We don't have, um, New York City's on a reservoir, but um, in terms of water heaters, I mean, when I was, I was, I was a plumber for about 16 years before I had my, ended up in my current job, but um, I replaced hundreds of water heaters and you turn that thing over and you let all that sediment out. It's amazing how much is, sediment just to cruise in there and if you shut your water on and off whatever it, it disturbs all that and you get you get so much of that in there it's actually so bad that the um little just to nerd out for a second here <laughs> um 
Water's, water heaters actually have something called an anode rod, which is basically a magnesium rod that goes deep inside the tank. And the idea is that the impurities in the water actually, it's a self-consuming, it's a self-consuming artifact. It, it, it breaks down the magnesium rod before it breaks down the, the inside of the tank of the water heater. So just to give you some perspective of how, you know, I mean, not necessarily lethal to humans, but just how impure that, that water can be, it can do a substantial amount of damage. Yeah. Yeah, that's why when I got my new one, the guy told me, he goes, you have to empty it once a year to just release all the sediment that's in there so that it gets out. Um, but I basically installed the whole house uh, purifier. as uh, about $1,000, I think. Um, and it made a huge difference uh, from my, because I'm on, t- I'm, I'm, I'm not in a city. I'm not like, you're on Long Island. To me, that's a city. What I mean by that is, I live in the middle of nowhere. It's sort of rural. Um, and we have 25,000 people. It goes up to 100,000 in the summer. But we live off a pond. And the pond I can basically walk to and walk around it. And it's not the cleanest pond in the world. <laughs> <laughs> it's cleaner than mine. Yeah. Um, but, uh, go ahead. Well, I was thinking about, I mean, we, we kind of touched on breeding on a, um, you know, on a kind of on a grand scale. but. It just, I mean, what does it take just to get under no, under normal circumstances without any real conditioning? What does it take to get two Xenopus to reproduce? And and how many, like how, like from just from from mating up until egg deposition to tadpole metamorphosis? I mean, what? How does that process work? So I think the important thing is if you can get them, you most people probably don't have access to hormones to get them to lay. Um, so you have to establish the light cycle or the seasonality of it. Um, and so they have to see actual sunlight and so forth. Um, but if you can get them to, if you have a male and female in a tank and they actually, uh, the male goes into amplexus and you get some embryos, um, I think leaving them in the tank, I'm not sure how much they'd survive. You're better off taking them out, um, you know, growing them in a dish. Uh, or in a small tank uh, outside for the first three to four weeks. And basically, you know, after about a week, you have to start feeding them basically just, you know, uh, those uh, flakes, fish flakes or whatever you want to feed them, ground up frog food or whatever. Um, And you just have to keep them separate until they get through metamorphosis. And I think the key is, as I said, when I was a grad student, I just grew them in these huge tubs. Um, I mean, we did in vitro fertilization, so it's a little different. Um, but the idea is once you get the embryos, um, for the first week, you really don't have to do anything with them. You can leave them in the thing. Once they start, you know, you can clean out the dead ones because you've always got some dead ones in there. Uh, once they start feeding, uh, you know, you got to change the water every few days uh, and make sure they have clean water. You don't want to really mechanically disturb them in terms of with nets because it can disrupt their spinal cord and everything. Uh, so if you can avoid that, it's not horrible. But you normally when you breed them in captivity, they develop these kinks in their spinal cord. And you see these frogs with those little humps in their spinal cord when they're adults. Um, but they don't need clean water. They just need semi-clean water. And just uh, I remember I used to grow them and i couldn't even see the water like see the tadpoles in the water i got it got so dirty but then i would change it every so often uh and they were really happy with that so 
I think the key with growing them through metamorphosis is, especially when they're going through metamorphosis, is not to disturb them as much. Is just to try to change the water where you're not moving the tadpoles. It doesn't have to be pure, clean water. It can be dirty. Uh, in the sense, what I mean by dirty is cloudy. Uh, you take out some of the water, you add fresh water back, it's still a little cloudy. That's okay. Um, the idea is to give them so that the ammonia is not very high in the water. That's what you want to avoid. The ammonia will kill them. What about aeration, like the, you know, the oxygen content of the water? I mean, was, would using like an aerator stone help or is it just? Uh... Yeah, we always have aerators with our tadpoles. Um, it, it does help. Um, it, it can't, you know, you can just put up like what we have are, so we have these recirculating systems and then we have, uh, pipes of air and then we drop in uh, plastic tubing into each that just puts air in the, in, into the water. So that's important as well. Even though ours are recirculating, we still add air to the, uh, to the system. But when I, as I said, when I was a grad student, I never did that. And it didn't really matter that much uh, as long as you were taking. I mean, I had tubs that were, I don't know, two, three feet long by about two feet wide. And I'd have hundreds of tadpoles in there. Um, and I actually used to just scoop them out into a new new tank. Uh, and it wasn't too bad. Uh, so especially with Xenopus flavus, they're really hardy with it. I would not recommend it with Xenopus tropicalis. I see. It's amazing how the species is so, they're just so different. They've each got so much. So much going on between the uh, differences between the two of them. Oh, no, you're right. We have uh, eight different Xenopus species, and uh, we grow them all at about the same temperature. Um, but the size difference, is, it, it, it's hilarious. Like the Xenopus borealis, the tadpoles become these monstrosities. They're huge, but the frogs never actually get that big. And it's really, they're, they're twice the size of Xenopus lavis, the tadpoles. But the adults are half the size of Xenopus leaves. Yeah, there's a, there's a few. Spe- I remember taking a class a couple of months ago. I remember there's there's a couple of species. There's this one species of frog. I can't remember what it is. Oh, for the life of me! But that the the tadpole stage is like gigantic, and when it metamorphoses, the adult is like half the size of the tadpole. It's some crazy ratio like that. Yeah. Yeah. So we have like Bumbayensis, we have Amietti, we have Peter's Eye, Power Eye. Mueller eye and some of these you can buy from commercial i think xenopus express and uh sells Mueller eye so there you know other species can be bought from some of these commercial vendors but some of them just aren't uh available uh some are endangered uh long geeps the the decaploid i mentioned earlier uh you can't get that anywhere they're pretty much extinct that's wild well we talked about some of the research aspects of Xenopus in the beginning, but you, you also told me something before we kind of got started here about um, you're essentially like the chairman of, uh, I guess it's like the animal welfare aspect of the lab. Uh, it's called IACUC. Could you, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that stands for Institutional Animal Care Use Committee. Uh, any research you do on a vertebrate animal in any academic setting, um, you have to get approval from IACUC. Um, and IACUC is a committee that's composed of a lay member, uh, some scientists, external members who may be scientists uh, that are not directly involved in the animal research. And the idea is that any type of uh, experimentation you do on the animals has to be approved by the IACUC. It's pretty rigorous. 
Uh, in most institutions, you have to approve, you have to get a, a renewal every three years. Um, so if you want to do some type of operation on an animal, you have to make sure the IACUC approves of it, uh, that you're using the right sutures, that you're using the right uh, analgesia, uh, analgesic or anesthesia, the right dosage. Um, and so the committee, uh, we people submit their protocols to us. We review them as a committee. We go back to the researcher and say, we don't really like this. Can you change this? And part of that is just to educate if you think about it, educate the researcher to say, uh, that's not the best way to do this experiment. Um, we think this is a better way. And, you know, the veterinarian is involved. So she's aware or he's aware of what is going on in terms of animal welfare. We want to make sure that there's no pain involved with the animal. Uh, a great example is uh, if you think about uh, mice, when you do operations on them, you have to have all these uh, sterile conditions and all this. Xenopus, for example, it has a natural immunity to anything. So you don't have to be sterile with Xenopus in the same way you'd have to be sterile with mice. So each animal is different. And uh, so the IACUC has to be aware of whatever vertebrate animal is being used, what is appropriate for that animal. So you can't just grab an animal and dissect it all you want you actually have to be approved by the IACO committee. And this is all governed by the government. Um, so I get my funding from the National Institutes of Health uh, and they have a, a what's called OLAW, Office of Laboratory Animal Welfare, uh, and they approve every institution. Uh, so every year we have to get approval from the NIH to do animal research and everybody has to do this. Um, and if you don't have the approval, the government won't give you money. So it's a critical component of any research that is done in academia, and it's done to ensure that uh, animal welfare is maintained at all costs. So, uh, but uh, I'll be clear that the way they classify animals, like Xenopus is not considered an animal until it starts feeding. So you're talking five to seven days after fertilization. So anything before that is not considered an animal. One thing you said actually kind of interested me was um was pain management um and um uh a uh, sedation there's not a tremendous amount or at least that i was able to find out in, in the literature in, re in regards to um you know proper anesthetic and and pain management etc for amphibians in in um uh, mater's uh, reptile and amphibian medicine uh, was it in husbandry and surgery um there's only like a short paragraph about it. I mean, how sophisticated is anesthesia and, and pain management when it comes to Xenopus? I mean, it's got to be pretty sophisticated given the scale that um, the lab is operating on. So pain management isn't huge, and mainly because nobody understands pain in frogs and amphibians. Okay. Um, anesthesia, yes. Um, so we use tricane, which is MS-222, um, and that is used very common to... Uh, sedate the animal. Uh, you can also use benzocaine. You have to be careful with benzocaine though, because it's a little more, uh, what's the word? Uh, not harsh, but um, it can induce death quickly. Uh, so you can use an uh, anesthesia like MS-222 or tricane to actually uh, euthanize the frog, but you can also at a lower dose use it to anesthetize the frog. So sometimes, for example, we want to take out ovaries from a frog. So we have to cut through the skin. Then we have to cut through the dorsal, the, the, the ventral wall. 
uh, we remove the ovaries, uh, and that's all done an under anesthesia. And you have to be careful, though, when the frog, you can't just put the frog back in water. You have to prop the frog up on a platform where it's breathing air, not breathing water. Uh, because Xenopus, for example, breathes both breathes air or oxygen both through water and air, but it will drown if it's under anesthesia and it's not above the surface. So we, you have to create a platform where when it's under anesthesia before it wakes up that it's actually just breathing air. Um, so there are, you have to have a right dose about it. It's, there's actually quite a bit of literature out there um, on this, on the dosage that is needed and, and so forth, depending on the size of the animal. I'm going to have to look for that now because now I'm, I'm intrigued, especially uh, what you said about really, we don't quite understand how they, um, what I guess their understanding of pain and discomfort is. It's just one, I don't know. It's just one of those things that's always, you know, um, I, I mean, I like to think of myself as being an ethical keeper. So it's one of those things that I'd always had a concern for was, you know, when you get into that, I guess, uh, you know, unpleasant section where, you know, one like, no one likes to deal with, with, uh, pain and surgery and whatnot. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to see that it's, you know, so well regulated, you know, in a research setting that so much care is given for the animal's well-being. It, it is. Um, so I serve as IACUC chair here at the uh, Marine Biological Laboratory, and uh, we can do spot checks. If there's researchers here, we can walk into the labs and say, we want to see how you're taking care of your animals. And if they fail, they get disciplined. Um, so it's not a simply, you know, people think of, oh, researchers doing whatever they want. They aren't. Um, they're on, they can be actually suspended from working on animals. Um, and, and it's pretty serious that we have to report all these issues to the government as well. So to the NIH, we have to say we had an incident. Here's the incident. Um, so there, and we can actually lose all our funding if we are not regulating animal welfare, welfare properly. So <clears throat> in terms of, you know, pain, uh, we are always looking at animals trying to think that they perceive pain as we do, uh, but they don't. They react to stimuli, but it's not necessarily equivalent to pain. Um, so they may re react to something that would be painful for us, but you don't know if it's painful for them or it just might be a reaction of the animal to the stimuli. Maybe it's heat, for example. You know, you, you put a little bit of a uh, really hot stuff on a frog and it jumps away. Well, yeah, but that could be just a reaction, not necessarily a pain reaction, but just uh, an intuitive reaction that the frog has. The, you know, none of these animals have the same mental capacity we do and don't perceive life as we do. Uh, and that's that, that all comes into consideration, but we try always to, from an animal welfare perspective, to ensure that the animal is treated as humanely as possible, even if we go overboard in the sense of attributing reactions to ourselves or to the animal that we ourselves would have, even though the animal may not have. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. It's, you know, it's a delicate topic. It's, I, I bring it up in part because I've heard of hobbyists, I really shouldn't call them hobbyists, but that kind of does a disservice to the hobby, but uh, I've heard of people doing home remedies on sick frogs that when you read it out loud, you think to yourself like, oh my God, like why would this person 
do something like this. It's just so, I mean, yeah. you know, tr- trying, I don't want to get into too much detail, but you know, and no consideration is given for any kind of pain management or anesthesia, anything like that. I mean, it's, it's reassuring to realize that, you know, the, the, the government itself obviously is implementing policies for animal welfare in situations where people wouldn't even think that there was any at all. You know what I mean? It's, it's basically what I'm to, to sum it up. What I'm saying is it's comforting to know that, you know, a lab that deals with an animal in a laboratory capacity is probably treating it better and more humanely than, um, you know, a, a, well, I'll say civilian. Oh, you're, you know, you're definitely right. It is more complex what somebody has to go through. And we get complaints from people saying, why do I have to do this? Why do I have to do like, uh, and each institution is different. And, but we get inspected by the USDA every year. Um, the USDA only covers certain species. So, uh, but they want to see our, if we're using species that are covered under USDA, how do we handle them? What has happened? How do we do it? Uh, what instruments do we use for euthanasia? How sharp are the scalpels? We, I mean, it, the details they go into are amazing. So when the inspector comes around, she'll walk into a lab and just go, how are you euthanizing this uh, gerbil? How are you doing this? And if the person doesn't respond properly, the person isn't responsible. I am as IACUC chair because I run the committee that is responsible for the institution. And so when the USDA comes around the inspector and says, well, you know, that you failed at this, then it's my job to go and say, okay, I got to have more oversight over how these people are actually handling the animals. And that's sort of the checks and balances that occur with animal welfare. I mean, it can't be in the, you know, in the interest of anyone to, uh, to kind of do things the wrong way. I mean, I can't, I can't imagine someone coming in to, uh, work in the lab and making some sort of, uh, we'll say lapse in good judgment. I mean, I, I can't imagine that being good for your career or for the lab. No, but you know, people are left alone and, uh, sometimes they just slack a little. And so it's good to have oversight in that regard. Um, mainly because most researchers, you have some training in animal welfare and it depends on your institution. Um, but it, again, it depends on the individual. And you think about it, even with scientists, you can have people who just don't care about animal welfare and you can have people who do. They're normal people. There's nothing different about them from you and me. And just like in the general public, you can have people who just don't care about animal welfare. Um, and But in a research setting, it is highly regulated. Yeah, that's it is reassuring to know because, I mean, I don't I don't want to get into any kind of ethics debate or anything like that. But, um, you know, people who are critical of laboratory situations. You know, what you just said pretty much, you know, establishes the fact that the welfare of these animals is being pretty strictly considered and enforced. So I guess to naysayers out there, you know, you have to understand that, you know, this is what, this is what happens. This is, uh, you know, straight from the horse here. No, you're absolutely right. I, uh, I serve as the voice of animal welfare, my institution, and people don't like me sometimes, uh, because I am more strict than they would like, for example. Um, I don't mean that they're cruel. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I just mean that, you know, there are certain rules that have to be applied. And if you don't follow them, then we come down hard. And um, 
And especially because where I'm at, we have a lot more visiting researchers. So if you're at an institution or a university, um, you're there all the time. But where I'm at, people come for three months and then leave. And so they have to learn what the rules and regulations of our institution are. Um, and that's really important. If, if I went to a different university, I'd have to learn those rules and regulations. And that, there's a general guideline that the National Institutes of Health put out. And they say, here are the general guidelines. You can modify them, but you have to, here's the baseline that you have to follow. You can make it stricter if you want, uh, but it's not necessary. But if you'd like, you can. And a lot of universities actually make it more difficult. Would you say that it's, I mean, in terms of the regulations in the United States, at least those that are imposed by the, the United States government. I mean, what, how does it factor into other countries like the UK? I mean, you, you said you'd gone to uh, England, and yeah. I don't know if you have relationships with scientists or researchers in other countries, but how do our standards compare to, say, like a country in Europe or South America yeah. or wherever? No, they're very similar. The differences are, for example, um, in the US, if I'm working on frogs, the Animal Welfare Committee knows that I need to be trained on frogs. When I went to the UK, I had to be, I had to learn about large animals like cows as part of my training for animal welfare. And I was like, I'm never going to work on a cow, but I had to actually take a course on working with these large animals because it was all part of the animal welfare training. And I was like, I'm never going to work on a mouse. Why do I have to take all these courses on, you know, mice? I'm just working on a frog. But I had to learn all these things about all these large animals, for example. And it was sort of a waste because I'd never worked on them. Um, so they're like the UK is very strict. Um, and you have to take courses and learn how to anesthetize a dog, for example, or a cow. Even though you're never going to work on them, you have to understand the principles behind all that. Yeah, from what I've heard, the UK is, is very, uh, very proactive about that type of stuff. They are. They have, they have what's called the home office. And the home office is what regulates all that. Um, and so the problem with frogs is most veterinarians and most people treat frogs as if they were mice or larger mammals. And they are just not the same thing. You can't treat them the same way. You can't uh, anesthetize them the same way. You can't sterilize them. Because think about it, like Xenopus has natural peptides on its skin that are antimicrobial. So it's actually more harmful to the frog to take ethanol and rub the skin before you do a surgery. Whereas in mice, you have to take ethanol, rub the skin before you do surgery because they don't have any natural peptides, whereas frogs do. And so you're actually killing the natural uh, immunity that a frog has by putting on ethanol on a frog you're actually making it more harmful to the frog if you're going to do a surgery. So there's always these species-specific things that if the people don't understand it or the veterinarians don't understand it, it's actually more harmful to the animal. Do you have veterinarians that specialize just exclusively with Xenopus or frogs in general, or do you have kind of a general practitioner? So here where I'm at, I have a veterinarian who specializes in aquatic animals. Everything from cephalopods to fish uh, to crabs to xenopus um, and mice. Uh, so her specialty is aquatics. So she understands aquatic animals. 
But if you go to university where most of the research is m mammals like mice, the veterinarians actually do not know much about frogs and they don't understand water quality. They don't understand uh, operate, you know, if you're doing surgery on a frog. Um, and so that's one of the things that more and more is part of our job here at the NXR is to educate these veterinarians about how Xenopus is actually not a mammal and you can't treat it as a mammal because with mice, you have what are called SPF, SPF plus facilities, which are really clean facilities. Um, and you can't apply that to the frogs. The frogs, as I said, don't need completely clean water. They just need to make sure that there's no ammonia or nitrite in there. And they're pretty good. That would make for a pretty interesting internship, I could imagine. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, it's like I, I actually went a couple years to go to Australia because they were having problems with their Xenopus down there. Uh, and part of it was the uh, sort of the understanding of how do you care for the frogs? Because there's no Xenopus in Australia. There's very few of them. Um, and they just didn't understand how to care for the frogs properly, both from an animal care perspective, but both and a research perspective as well. Um, and so uh, I went down there to evaluate it. I worked with the veterinarians, with the researchers, just to try to make them aware of what is more important uh, for ensuring healthy Xenopus. That's amazing. I mean, we're kind of getting down towards the end here. Is, I mean, is there anything else you wanted to add that we didn't get to? I mean, God, there's so much more I'd like to get into, but is there anything you wanted to uh, add on before we kind of wind down? I think one of the questions you had raised is what constitutes a transgenic or mutant frog? Yes, yes, um, that's right. I think that's a good question. So transgenic just means that you take a random piece of DNA, you inject it into the frog, it randomly integrates into the genome, uh, and it's part of the frog's genome. It doesn't necessarily mean it's part of the germ cell. So the important thing is if you want to propagate it. So when we make transgenic frogs, we inject it, um, but not every frog we inject will transmit it to the germline. And part of that is just due to the nature of how the frog develops, because you got the, the bottom part, what we call the vegetal hemisphere. It's all the yolk that the frog feeds off of for the first five days. But that's also where the germ cells come from. But it's also the types of cells that do not integrate DNA as readily. So I can inject something into a frog and I can make it transgenic, but it won't go to the next generation. So we actually have some tricks to make sure it goes to the next generation to ensure that we can propagate this throughout the next five, six generations. So that's just a random integration uh, of DNA. You don't know where it goes, what it integrates in. It happens in all species. They do it in mice, they do it in frogs. Um, that's what they call transgenic. Now a mutant frog is something what we call, there's forward genetics and what they call reverse genetics. And so more common now is what we call reverse genetics, where you find a gene and you say, I want to mutate that specific gene X. And you can use what's called CRISPR-Cas, which is the genome editing stuff that's come up in the last six years for which the woman won the Nobel Prize this past year, uh, Jennifer Dudna uh, and her colleague. And it's just revolutionized science. So now, like in frogs, we could never make mutant frogs unless they just arose naturally. Now we can go in and say, I want to mutate this specific gene. I can design it so that it mutates in a specific part of that gene. Uh, and then I can propagate that mutation through successive generations. And that's very valuable to be able to say, as I told you about the polycystic kidney disease, we can actually make mutants and genes that are involved in heart disease, 
diabetes, uh, thyroid. We actually have uh, now in Xenopus lavis thyroid hormone mutants uh, in the, what's called the gene called THR beta. Um, and there we've actually made, so it's got four copies of this gene. So we've made all different combinations of it. And it has different effects on metamorphosis, depending on which gene you're mutating. Um, and so we're, there's a lot that can be done here. And it's very helpful. Like thyroid hormone mutants are great because in humans, we have thyroid hormone mutants. They're just naturally occurring. But you can't really experiment on them. But if you have a frog that has a thyroid hormone mutant, you can now throw chemicals on it. You can test it out. The tadpoles, you can see how it affects because thyroid hormone affects development. So we can actually test on the tadpoles. How can we improve this for humans who have mutations in this gene? Now we can actually say, okay, we can add these chemicals to uh, test it out. So that's something that we're really working on now, making different mutants involved in like sex determination, for example, trying to understand different processes, uh, everything from uh, normal development. I mean, I working on things that are involved in congenital heart disease. Uh, we can do all these things in these tadpoles that now allow us to actually test them out uh, with different chemicals. And one of the great things about frogs is they have lungs, um, they have a pancreas, they have a stomach. Everything is much more similar to humans than, say, fish. Fish don't have lungs. Frogs have lungs. So now if we want to study lung disease or a lung mutant, we can actually make that mutant in frogs and figure out how do we improve that. Uh, if we're talking about a congenital anomaly in humans, how do we improve that in the frogs so that we can apply it to, say, uh, humans? That's incredible. I mean, is that where you think the, the future of this research is going? Definitely, definitely. I think uh, we, that's only a, a half of it, I think, or a third of it. There's a huge part of making these different mutants to model human disease. But there's also a big uh, line of research that goes on with Xenopus eggs and oocytes, where they study uh, cell division. Um, there's Nobel Prizes that were awarded for understanding how cell division happens because they use the Xenopus egg and the oocyte. So we can actually look at differences, what happens from an oocyte to an egg. And people may not understand it, but an oocyte is basically an egg that is in the body of the frog. Once the frog lays that oocyte, it's called an egg. And there are huge differences between the oocyte in the body and when it lays the egg. Um, and it's the same thing that applies to human maturation within the body. Um, I mean, humans don't produce eggs like frogs do, but the maturation of the oocyte to an egg uh, is very similar. And so we can actually study that much more methodically in the frog and be able to understand, okay, how does this happen? What is involved? Uh, and be able to, like, we can make, we can take thousands of eggs and make extracts from these eggs and understand all the protein machinery that's involved in cell division uh, based on just this extract of eggs. Um, and we can then take mutant frogs, for example, that are lacking a certain part of that extract uh, and see how does it affect cell division? How does it affect these things? And this is applications for everything from cancer to fertility research to uh, just normal development. That's wild. It's amazing to think you know, what the future holds because of something so, something so seemingly innocuous as this little frog from Africa. Mm, absolutely. Um, it's just, 
it's unappreciated. Like if you go back 20 years, it was the main, one of the main models for early development. Zebrafish came on and they've sort of overtaken us in terms of a model organism. But again, the zebrafish doesn't have lungs. It doesn't have limbs. Frogs have limbs. If I want to, I can study regeneration in a frog. For example, the tail regenerates in a Xenopus tadpole. I can cut the tail off. Now I can do studies on what happens in the first few days of regeneration. Um, Xenopus regenerate their limbs as tadpoles. I can cut part of the, of the limb and see how does it regenerate. Now it doesn't produce five digits like we have, but uh, depending on the stage of development, it does produce two, three, four digits. And now I can see, okay, why like part of, at a certain point in development, it does regenerate properly, but at a certain point in development, it doesn't. So what changes? Why is it more like humans when it doesn't regenerate properly, whereas earlier in development, it does regenerate? So now we can say, okay, what is it that's inhibiting regeneration? And can we make applications for that to humans then? And if we can understand what promotes regeneration in the early stages of development, but hinders it at later stages of development, then we can maybe have applications. It's very different from axolotl, where you can cut the limb off as an adult and it regenerates no problem. Um, whereas the frog has this regenerative phase and a non-regenerative phase. So it actually is very helpful if you're studying regenerative biology to understand what was the cause of the non-regenerative phase. Wow. <laughs> That's wild. Well, I mean, if anyone wants some additional resources on, on Xenopus in, or your research in general, I mean, is there some sites or you could you could direct them to? Yeah, they if they just look up National Xenopus Resource, um, they'll find everything that we have. We list all our frogs on there. It's a public domain. Uh, they can learn about what we do through that. Uh, as I said, Zenbase is a great resource for Xenopus, where you can find everything from the genome of the frogs to mutants to transgenics to anything you want to hear about what's going on in the research community with Xenopus, that'll be on Zenbase. Um, and all those things, if you go there, you can find pretty much anything uh, that you need, even as a layperson, uh, and you want to play around with learning how to navigate a genome. It, it's very user-friendly. Uh, a lot of scientists, when they've made genome maps, they're not really user-friendly. I hate to say that. Um, but Zenbase is one of the few where you can actually dig deep in as long as you know the name of the gene and you can actually scroll along the chromosome, see what other genes are in the area. And it's fun to play around with uh, just to get an idea of how it overlaps with humans. And actually you can compare it because you can go into uh, what's called NCBI, which is the NIH uh, uh, database. And you can actually compare what we call syntony, which means uh, the alignment of genes on a chromosome. So if you have A, B, and C, do they align the same in frogs as in humans? And in many cases, they do. And so, but you can find things also that are unique to amphibians, meaning um, you can find genes that don't exist in humans, but exist in, hum in uh, amphibians. And that can be actually revolutionary and insightful. Uh, a great example was I started looking into, as I told you, I was working on sex determination. And there was a gene involved in mammals and in humans in sex determination that didn't exist in frogs. It just doesn't exist. But if you go to that same region in the chromosome, there is a gene there. It's similar to the human gene. Not very similar, but it's similar. 
So it must do something specific for amphibians that is different from humans. So the question is, what does it do? I have no idea, but it's something that we're starting to look into. And we're just saying, okay, wait, um, I can't actually say this is the homologue of the human gene because it's not. It's not even similar at all. But I know from a structure perspective of a protein, it is similar to the human gene. So it's got to do something, but we just don't know what it does in amphibians. Yeah, young people out there, get, get involved. Uh, this is the future. <laughs> uh, no, it, the, to me, the amazing thing is it's an aquatic animal. There ha the, okay, yeah, there's going to be similarities, but there have to be differences. So what are the differences? And how do you understand those differences? And what does it lead to? It's amazing. You can think of an animal that lives underwater its whole life. It has to regulate osmolarity, all these things differently. So it has to have some proteins that are different than humans. What are they? How does it do it? And how can we apply that to humans? How can we take that information and say, you know what, now we can, I mean, I'm, I'm talking science, no science here at all, it's fiction. But how can you apply that to humans so that you can go underwater longer, for example? It's a, I'm not, I'm not really saying truthful here. What I'm saying is though, could you take that and understand why a frog can be underwater for so long and make it so that a human could be underwater longer, for example. Like like Aquaman. <laughs> Aquaman, exactly. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> that's great. Well, listen, Marco, it has been enlightening. Um, I, we, we covered so much. I know that there's so much more we could, but we're, we're running low on time. But I want to thank you again for coming on the show and being my guest. It was very, very, very interesting to say the least. So, um, ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Marco Horb, thanks again for being on the show. Oh, it was my pleasure. And I'm happy to answer questions. Uh, but as you said at the beginning, I can't sell you frogs. Um, but if you have specific questions or have interest in research, I'm more than happy to answer those questions or help you out, especially for you, you said younger uh, people or your high school or going to college and thinking about research. Um, as I said at the beginning, I didn't know what research was. I had no clue what it was. I'm happy to help people figure out what it means and to try to direct them and encourage them to go into research. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. I want to thank everyone for listening. It's been a great episode. Catch up with you guys again soon.